Well, hello there, and welcome to Rockets Pockets. Today on the line, we have William Ben, a former human uh, intelligence operative. And William, I'm sitting here with a uh, tumbler full of scotch and a couple of T3s for my back, and uh, I'm ready to go. How about you? Nice. Yeah, I'm ready to rock and roll, too. <laughs> All right. Tell me about you. Tell us about yourself. Well, um, I started out uh, 3rd Battalion RCR back in the day, mid-90s. Um, left the, sorry about the noise there, left the uh, RCR in 2000 um, after what I thought was some significant injuries, just a couple of knees. Um, years <laughs> later, I know that. Yeah, we know what injuries are now. Yeah. Um, and I went to become an aircraft mechanic, and I landed in Trent in the summer of 2001. And uh, shit went downhill from there, obviously, that fall. And I was um, doing some some work with the Air Force, and uh, I ended up launching an aircraft full of RCR. It's actually, I th- you were on that plane, I think. Yeah, um, I remember meeting at, it was a secret base at the time. Yeah. And that kind of shook me up a little bit, and I was uh, I was put out that I wasn't going up north with you guys, and uh, so that led me to to look at getting back into the infantry. And that didn't work out because some idiot wanted me to do basic or battle school again, which was a little bit crazy. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and um, I was so I ended up you know um, looking around the Camforgens to see what could be done, and. Uh, there was a, a recruiting message out for human to, at the time. And I was like, Oh, cool. I What's can, that? yeah, I could sort of fast track this and get out onto the ground and, and uh, do something, you know, hopefully meaningful. So I read the message and like an idiot, I didn't really, I didn't know anything about it at the time. So I, you know, headed out for a selection. And uh, at the end of selection was one of two guys picked up uh, off of that selection and they brought us in to give us a briefing on what what uh, human entails, and it blew my mind. Like, it legitimately blew my mind. Well, like Canada doesn't let's, do that. Let's uh, back it up a little bit. There, you applied. Um, yeah. What? Uh, how did the selection process go? Like, um, what did you have was, to do? Put in a memo, of course, to somebody. Yeah, put in a memo, and um, you know, meet certain basic criteria. Um, you know, be trade qualified, have a certain number of years in. But really, it was it was a blank slate. They were asking for anybody with the potential to come and try out. And what is the potential they were looking for? Um, the potential they were looking for was people who had an ability to um, talk to people and relate. Well, really, at the end of the day, that was kind of it. That's certainly you. Um, I remember when uh, we were up north, I ran into some of the human guys, and it, and it was a really interesting. Uh, conversation and and the work they did although um can be at times uh, exciting i it involved a hell of a lot of paperwork um but the yep. uh the process itself so you got your memo approved you went in and what did selection consist of um you know what i, I don't really talk about selection um the way assaulters don't talk about selection because i don't want to bias it because i i firmly believe that what they do is is very important. It's worthwhile. And the process, realistically, if I tried to prep anybody for it or I talked to anybody about it, 
it just ruins the process. You really got to go in raw so that they can get a clean assessment. Right. But I will tell you that it was um, like a kaleidoscope of experiences and very, very, very long days and physically and mentally challenging. Yeah, that's and, when I looked into it, it was they described it as being very physically uh, challenging. And even yeah, which, and the the physical standard to get in there was was surprisingly high, uh, considering the across the board um, type of people they were looking for. Yeah, and that's got a lot to do with the fact that um, you're basically responsible for yourself, right? Um, you know, so you have to be physically fit enough to extract if you have to extract to do you know long duration missions. Um, there's, there's there's a wicked range of stuff that you have to be able to do as a as a humanter. Can you give some kind of indication of stuff you're doing? Um, <laughs> we have yeah, to have something to talk about, William. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So essentially, um, you know, the main mission, the reason for existence, is to support whatever operation that you're attached to, right? Right. So usually um, you're gathering information and feeding the ASIC, which is the all-source intelligence cell. Okay. And uh, as opposed to things like IMINT or SIGINT, which is like sort of um, as it happens, uh, reactive type scenarios. Right. We try and figure out the intent of what's happening and and the intent of what the enemy is trying to do so that we can counter it. Right. And um, you, we did, we you, you did countered... everything from... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go... I was going to say, we did everything from uh, um, dismantling IED production lines and, and logistics cells um, to um, imminent force protection jobs, i.e., find an IED and realize that a column's about to roll over it and, and stop them so they don't do that. Right. And you stop them. You guys aren't personally out there uh, stopping it. You're passing the information on to hire so they can plan and send in the uh, right resources to uh, eliminate the problem. Exactly. If if we're pulling the trigger, there's a huge problem. And if we're seen or heard, there's a huge problem. Oh. All kinds of bizarre all kinds of bizarre circumstances and, and setups, everything from like high profile stuff to, to very, very low profile stuff. Such as, um, you know, one of, one of my jobs involved, uh, briefing Peter McKay right. on a semi monthly basis. Well, he which was, was a awesome defense minister. Yeah. At the time I was a corporal. Right. right? And he, and every time he would say, Good job, Captain. And every time I would say, sir, I'm a corporal, and he'd laugh at me. <laughs> and afterwards, um, you know, sort of towards the end of tour, we were getting a, a medal presented to us. And it was the first time he'd seen us in uniform, like regular CF uniform. And uh, when he came over to me and pinned the medal, he's like, holy fuck, you are a corporal. <laughs> well, at least he <laughs> recognized the rank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He seemed like a decent guy. I met him uh, while we were up north as well. He'd come around uh, and toured. And I have nothing but good to say. He treated us very, very well. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I have nothing but good to say. And we accomplished good work with his help, so I was happy. So, I don't know. Um, one of the guys 
some of the human guys uh, that were working in the same location I was, um, they came to me one time and said, we've got a, uh, a source, an Afghan national, who uh, we, th- we needs a little medical care. And uh, I don't know, I must have shown some sort of look on my face. And they said, don't worry, Doc, we don't expect him to live that long because he's a, he's a high-level uh, commander. He goes out and they play CIEDs at night. Then he comes in during the day and tells us where they are. So he's playing a risky game, but apparently his his conscience was getting the better of him. Allah did not approve of his uh, his shenanigans. No, it was such a complicated place to work, and there were so many variables at play. Um, and that guy did great things and helped people. So, you know, sometimes you got to deal with the absolute worst scumbags on the planet, and I mean the worst that humanity has to offer. Well, this guy certainly ranked up there as a scumbag. I mean, he had years yeah. of killing killing uh, other Afghans and then killing Westerners, which which I fully appreciate. I mean, we're in, we're in his, his part of the world, and the Afghans traditionally are not well-known to welcome foreign armies into their, their lands. Um, no. So you, no, but the key... One of the key things to, to working with those guys is exactly what you just said, is acknowledging that and then sort of asking their permission. Right. Because a lot a lot of guys, especially the Americans, would wander around and be like, I'm part of the U.S. of A and I, the biggest army in the world, and I can do whatever I want, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, it, it was, it's funny you mentioned the Americans because whenever they left camp, they'd go out, they'd kill something, um, probably end up with some sustaining damages themselves. But our guys, when they went out, and I'm talking the, uh, the tier one, tier two guys, uh, when they went out, they didn't necessarily kill somebody every time they went out. They ended up, you know, getting the, uh, the information they wanted or picked up the whoever they wanted. Um, but the Yanks, yeah, pretty much every time they went out, somebody died. Yeah. Um, you know, and as, as crazy as this is going to sound, um, because <clears throat> almost 200 guys were killed, right? But there's a reason our casualties were so light compared to theirs. Because you if relied on... If you have on... to walk your back on every street corner, you're never getting anywhere ever. Right. Well, the same thing, same sort of comparison can be made to... Uh, I hate to bring it up because there's a. I can hear all the groaning in the background now. Bosnia, <laughs> when we had first got on the ground, we purposely went to soft caps because we replaced the Yanks and they walked around there and, you know, top high all the time, full, full battle rattle helmets on. And they looked aggressive where we were trying to come in there and, you know, show that we were a force to be recognized and don't fuck with us. Um, but we, we tried to, to uh, portray a friendlier face of war, if you will. Yeah. I mean, anytime you go to somebody else's house, it behooves you to act respectfully. Yeah, don't piss on their carpet. Yeah, that's not to say there isn't a job that needs to be accomplished, and we'll accomplish that job, but we'll we'll act appropriately. So, uh, you were you were in the infantry how long? How many years? Well, I only did five years in the infantry, and then you switched and, over to human. Uh, I switched to Air Force first, oh, then right. human. Um, so I stuck with Humit until, um, our last, my last rotation out of Afghanistan was in 2011. And then in 2012, I, uh, 
I, I was given an ultimatum by my wife at the at the time of um, you know come home or there won't be a home to come home to kind of thing. So you know, and I'm sure a lot of other dudes face that uh, that same challenge because it was yeah. it was an exceptionally busy period of time, right? So I wasn't actually home a lot. And they were an exceptionally busy unit considering the manpower they were working with. Exactly, exactly. Never enough guys to, to go out the door. So what did you decide? You, what did you do? Um, well, I went back to the Air Force um, because they were crazy <laughs> enough to take me back. I, um, so I basically got the choice of job and position that I wanted, which was awesome. Um, so I, I went back to Trenton. I went to a school situation. And I was able to do straight days and, and be home with my family. And and that worked out all right for you? Uh, for a few years. Okay, yeah, you, got a, few you years. got a few years out of it. So she stuck yeah. stuck it out. Uh, you, you left the job, no doubt, somewhat. Uh, were you ready to leave or were you? Um, no. No. <laughs> no. You didn't. Uh, it, it, was, it was legitimately the best job that I've ever done. Um, I miss it every day and I, I miss the guys every day because it's, um, it's a work environment where they treat you like a grown up for the most part. Right. And, uh, the guys I worked with were the best guys in the world. Yeah. It's kind of a regret that I have, um, cause I spoke to, uh, one of the dudes there in charge and, uh, I do regret not taking a kick at that cause it did sound really interesting. Um, but this I was on a different your path. It would literally blow your mind. Um, my, so my first like job file mission, whatever you want to call it, that I was in charge of, that I was leading overseas. Yep. Um, it, I felt like Alice in Wonderland for half the time because it was so surreal to be doing what we were doing out there. And it turned into a force protection scenario. And by what I mean by that is we, there was an imminent danger to Canadians and we had to, you know, relay this so that they didn't get get uh, killed, right? So, well, first Taliban off, the- what what were you doing out there that gave you the uh, the position to uh, to give this in- information to the force? Um, well, let's just say we were hanging out with locals looking for for bad guys. Were you hanging out with locals in a local environment? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Um, you know, and you're you're just out there. It's just a couple of guys. It's a you know. Very small unit. You don't go in big numbers. Um, Try not to be gen- noticed. Yeah, generally speaking, um, you know. And I'm trying to filter this through my active brain, so I'm not giving any any details away. But yeah. you know, so needless to say, um, you know, we we stumble across the fact that holy shit, there's an ambush set up for these guys, and it's three IEDs, and it's uh, say section minus or section of of Taliban that have this these IEDs covered with direct machine gun fire. Yeah. So we end up uh, getting in contact with the unit that was out there, which was a Kandak, um, which is like oh. the Canadian-led um, Afghan force. Right. And uh, it was just fucking. It was it was too wild. So they literally performed. They found the IDs. They came under contact from the Taliban. They literally like infantry textbook perfect, fixed them with with direct fire, and then performed a flanking maneuver. And wiped out the Taliban. It was just fucking phenomenal. <laughs> and as all this shit is going down, I'm like, I hear a Canadian yelling fire commands. Like, I know that voice. Like, 
I know I know that voice. Out of the out of the fucking wood line, like legitimately out of the fucking bush comes this Canadian running like a fucking teenager. And it's Bobby Cottenham. And he was old as dirt when I was in. Bobby, if you're listening to this, I apologize. It's but true, Bobby. You were old as dirt. Right? I thought he retired before I left. And there he was, like, literally running through the thick of the shit, like, in the middle of contact, winning the firefight, doing the do. And it was just fucking phenomenal. And it just, it was such a great feeling to know that we got all three IEDs. Nobody got hurt with the IEDs. Yeah. They had an awesome gunfight and they killed all the bad guys and it was, it was phenomenal. Um, you know, you're hooked at that point. Yeah, you're hooked. It's, yeah. yeah, and Bobby, just for those that don't know, he's one of those. He's a legend within the military, and he's one of those names that commands respect. Um, he doesn't demand it. He he leads by example, and yeah, it was. I can just see him, like you say, running across that field like a teenager, just giving her. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. So what were your, we, we won't get into your uh, high points at the moment. What were some of the low points of uh, doing the job? Um, <clears throat> when you get into a force protection scenario and you fail. Um, you know, we had a very, like 2008, we had a, a really rough go. Um, not as rough as the guys that were in the vehicle, but um you know, we lost uh, six dragoons in an IED strike, and and uh, we had tried to prevent it. Obviously, um, we had seventy two hours of reporting, trying to get these guys out of where they were in the valley, and uh, there was a there was a disconnect there. And it was you're trying we, to get the Canadians out of the valley. Yeah. So, what? Where? Where? I, I don't. I don't want to again get into uh, mission specific stuff. But what? What was the? Uh, what failed there? What um, what didn't happen that should have happened? Uh, we didn't have the ability um, to talk directly to the to the dragoons, so and we calm. were trying to. Yeah, so we're on the Argandab, and you know, headquarters is only a few kilometers away, back at CAF, and the RCD guys are you know literally on the other side of a high feature from us, and we can't can't talk to them. We can't can't get to them. We can't physically get to them. We can't call them. Um, so it was just a catastrophic comms failure. And, and, you know, quite frankly, I don't really give a fuck at this point. Um, headquarters let us down. Yeah. Cause I mean, how, how did you, you, did you, you must have had comms with somebody. We had comms with the ASIC. Right. Yeah. And they weren't taking your reporting seriously or, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't know how it went down in the ASIC. I know that uh, our OC at the time basically quit over that because they weren't. Uh, they didn't listen to us, and we lost. We lost six dudes. So, yeah, it's an organization like yours that you were in. It's not particularly well known across the uh, the military community. They keep a low profile because that's what's needed. Um, yeah. I mean, I certainly, for most of my years in, didn't didn't know about them. When, when did they uh, start up as a as a unit in Canada? Do you have any idea? Yeah, so they stood up as an official unit. Um, so they were like sort of administratively given the mandate to stand up as a unit with a uh, you know PRS and MLS and a and a goal, and uh, that was two thousand and six. Okay, 
So I'd imagine their guys being trained were trained by the Yanks and the Brits. Yeah, so a cool thing, um, in my mind it's a cool thing, because the, the Brits are really kind of, or were at that point, the the sort of global leaders at that kind of work. Right. And we had a, a good arrangement. So up until that point, we had been bringing teams together, training them, and then sending them home to their home units, and then drawing them back as required for missions. And a lot of that training, like you said, happened with the Brits. And uh, when we stood up in 2006, we moved that capability back. We, we poached a few key people. Nice. Um, yeah, there's a, I don't even know. Um, we got a guy that is legendary in the circles. The Russians wrote a book about him. Like he's just, I call him the godfather. A lot of people call him godfather. <laughs> But uh, we were, you know, super lucky to get some great talent, and then uh, we put a lot of time and effort into developing our training. And um, it it came hard and fast because we were in the middle of of um, obviously Afghanistan, so some high threat environment stuff, you know, because it's different for every environment you go to, right? Like you said, Canadians have been, you know, when we were in Bosnia, it was a different scenario. It wasn't uh, it wasn't as aggressive or harsh or you know, continual war fighting. Right. So that, you know, there's different things that you need to do for different environments and our, our hostile environment training, you know, took leaps and bounds because we, we were in it constantly. So what kept you humble? Cause you guys were doing some fucking awesome work out there. Uh, you know what? It's one of those things that, um, you know, we exist to serve and I, I don't know that, uh, and I don't even know how to have that conversation. Every day you're just trying to keep everybody do your best because you know that if you fail, people will die. Right. So what kind of uh, burnout rate were you guys having? Wicked. Yeah. Wicked because there were so few of us in the beginning. Um, and even now there's the numbers aren't quite what they need to be. Um, well, of course, because we're not in combat anymore and they're cutting fucking spots where they think they can cut spots. Yeah, and, you know, we may not be well-known, but we're certainly heavily leveraged. So we're very busy. Like, they're, they're, they are very busy. I keep saying we, but it's not me anymore. I'm retired. Um, but they're still very busy, and, and the training cycle is insane. It's, it's comparable to um, the hill, I would say. Yeah. So if you're not in an operational environment, you're, you're, you're doing training. constant professional upgrade training, right? Yeah. And that training can take you all over the place. Yeah, and uh, again, talk to, talking to the guys when we were up north that were doing the job, that's exactly how you explained it. They were either doing the job or um, preparing to do the job again with very little break time in between. So that's why I asked about the burnout rate because yeah, there's nuts. no time like, to recover. No, and like 2006 to 2011 for my last mission, out of 60 months, we were literally outside of Canada for 48 of it. Yeah, definitely, definitely you need a special woman who's going to be able to put up with that sort of nonsense. Yeah, yeah. So, and then, you know, you pile on top of that. So it lasted a few years because I, I only lasted a few years. You know, you talk about the burnout and, you know, that's a conversation for a whole nother day, but. Well, we can definitely it, so, have it. Yeah, it takes your toll. It takes a toll. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize how much of a toll until, uh, you know, January 15th, 2013. Mm -hmm. And 
And what, you know, you're right. Why do you we need pick more that people. one out? Uh, that is, uh, that's the day that Chuck killed himself. Okay. And that's burnout, man. I mean, that guy was, was a fucking awesome dude. Um, unfortunately, he was PPCLI. Couldn't be the greatest the infantry RCR, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, doing like real world, um, <clears throat> army combat stuff with PPCLI, like literally rocking the shit. Yeah. And then, you know, left it to go to human, which became even a higher pace. And it's, it's a different type of, of scenario, right? Cause you're not out there gunfighting. Right. And you know, you're not out there, uh, kicking doors, turn left, kill bad guy kind of deal. Right. But, but it's still exceptionally intense all the time. There's no relief. There's no pressure relief valve. Cause like you say, just, if you fuck something up, somebody pays for it. And it's probably yeah. not the bad guy. Exactly. Well, that fucking makes all that yogurt to, that you ate on that uh, base all all the more worthwhile, doesn't it? <laughs> That's the best yogurt in the world, man. <laughs> Honestly. It, it's, <laughs> so that secret base in parentheses. Um, <laughs> we can talk about it now. It's, it was in the uh, United Arab Emirates. Yeah, that was fucking awesome. I've never eaten so well in my life. <laughs> you, you you weren't a fat bastard when I ran into you, that's for sure, but there were plenty of fat bastards there. And uh, well, I remember I was just shooting shit with somebody. It might have been on a, on one of the podcasts or, or, or not, can't remember. But uh, the only guys that didn't bitch, everybody's bitching about things there. They had it fucking made. They could take a bus into the into Dubai, you know, twice, twice a day kind of thing every day. And... Uh, they had excellent food, excellent cooks, excellent um, air-conditioned places to stay. And oh, buddy. They, they were just bitching. One guy was bitching about the dessert table. And the fucking <laughs> dessert table was loaded with shit. And I, yeah. I, I, I can't remember. I mumbled something at him. But it should have been, you fat fuck, get away from the uh, dessert table and so you can fit into your uniform. But uh, the, the only guys who didn't complain were guys like you. Um who knew uh, how bad they could have it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know if I should admit this in public, man, but I, I paid one U.S. dollar a day, and somebody did my, literally did my laundry, wash, dry, fold, cleaned my room every day for one U.S. dollar. <laughs> Fucking crazy. I did better than that, my man. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I, this is back in Bosnia again. Sorry to take you to Bosnia again. But... uh We'd get our, the local ladies would do our laundry and you'd get that green mesh bag and you'd throw your laundry in and you'd get it back. Your laundry would just be thrown into the fucking bag and it'd be wet still. So you had to hang it up so it wouldn't mildew and rot. I said, fuck, there's got to be some way around this. So I I phoned, phoned my wife and I said, send me up a bunch of scented candles. And so she sent me up 20 or so scented candles, whatever it was. And I gave them to all the girls that worked in the laundry room. Well, they're like women. Sorry, sorry <laughs> to generalize out there, ladies. But they're like women all over the world. Scented candles are the cat's ass. They loved them. So after that, not only was my laundry always folded and dry, but in the middle of it would be a bottle of homemade Schlievel. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> I, I must have mailed home 10 fucking bottles of uh, Schlievel and uh, marriage proposals for their daughters, <laughs> which is and all over a scented candle. I love it. I love it. Man, Schlievelich was some dangerous shit, eh? Uh, but I, I grew attached to it. And uh, 
I brought it home. I mean, my background Ukrainian, so we're used to drinking rot gut, and uh, it's it's usually vodka. But I, I cracked it open the Slevo, and it was one of the finer homemade homemade brews that I brought back. And my brothers, <laughs> they wouldn't drink this shit even with mix. <laughs> nice. I went to uh, went to Serbia. Couple of years back, as well as on my uh, PA course, I met some Serbians, got along with them great, and I said, "Well, they said if you're ever in Serbia, swing by." So I went into Serbia and knocked on the door, and they picked me up and had a just a blast. <laughs> but they awesome. call it they call it lotsa. But anyways, we uh, go down a rabbit hole, <laughs> which you didn't pull me out of, I, as we're prone to do. I I can't. You know what? So I loved Bosnia. Um. I like to joke and say that I grew up in the army because um, I, I did learn a lot of hard life lessons there. Yeah. But there were some experiences there. There were, there were some horrible experiences there, but there were some, some great experiences there. Um, you know, we were, we we're on patrol one day and I'll just stay in this rabbit hole for one second if it's okay. Sure. And uh, you know, we get called up there, you know, we got to go up to the mountains, um, get in the vehicles, which I absolutely hated, hated the vehicles, anything to do with them. I hated it. But anyways, we get up there, and, uh, you know, this guy's showing us around, and his wife's sort of puttering around in the background, and they invited us into their home, which was amazing, um, and they made us coffee. They made coffee for everybody. Yeah, I love that coffee. Right? Doesn't seem like a big deal, really, at the time, until I realized that was literally the last coffee they had. Yep. And they made it to give to us. Yeah. So I told my section commander um, – Mark Cushman is, was awesome, dude. Yep. And uh, he didn't really say much. You know, he was, he's not that that kind of guy. And uh, so we go home. We finish our patrol. The next day he shows up and he's got a few boxes. And he's like, all right, mouth up. We're going back. And we're like, what's going on? So he had gathered up coffee and batteries and uh, just all kinds of, you know, creature comforts of life stuff, some sugar and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, we went back and, and gave them gave it to them and that was just you know he was that guy right he wasn't uh, he didn't he didn't brag about it or make a big deal yeah. he just did it right well steve steve robinson i was talking to him uh the other day you know uh, robbie robinson steven mm-hmm. um we were talking about this the other day and you you couldn't tell who was who in the fight over there um because they all looked alike and yeah. their culture was even alike in that if you went to their house you were showing hospitality. They'd bring out their last bit of bread or their last bit of coffee or, or the schlevo or whatever they had. And you as a guest were expected to drink it. And you knew damn well, you know, they're living in a, in a three-sided shack basically with the roof half caving in and they're, you know, giving you what they have and would be insulted if you didn't take it. <laughs> so yeah. it, was, it was just an incredible experience overall. But yeah. back to Afghanistan. You spent yeah, but you spent how many years of your life in Afghanistan? Um, the uh, boots on the ground time comes down to less than nineteen months. Yeah, eighteen, nineteen months. But a stressful um, nineteen months. It was it was just wild, you know, and, and it it was wild in in sort of a similar way as as Bosnia sometimes because. At times, when we went into the the main camp for our, you know, um, friends that like Elvis, uh, you know, when we were working out of that fob, 
you were treated like gold, uh, showers, the best food you ever ate, um, you know, Dubai aside. Um, and it was just like the ultimate luxury. And then you get back on a helicopter and off you go into the, the wilds of the world. And it's like, you know, you're sitting there with a guy and, you know, he's literally like one of the best meals of my life. Dude butchered the goat in front of us, yep. which was kind of weird. You're um, not a farm boy, are you? No, not like that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he butchered the goat in front of us and that was kind of cool. And then we watched him prep the meat, like butcher the meat and then prep it to be cooked and then spice it up and put it on the charcoal barbecue and the, you know, the fresh bread that was brought in and, and, uh, watched his wife make rice with shit ditch water, which kind of blew my mind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the whole time I'm watching him spice the meat, I'm thinking this guy hasn't washed his fucking hands at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to die from this meal. I have to die from this meal. But it tasted it. good though. It was delicious. It was absolutely phenomenal. Um, I suffered immensely for two days following it. Diarrhea, vomiting. Oh, buddy. So they're like, don't worry about it. It's the local bug. Everybody gets it. Once you get it, you won't get it again, <laughs> which was mostly true. So went through the rest of the tour without having, you know, any adverse reactions. We ate a lot of, we ate a lot of local food and it yeah. was awesome. Um, it got to the point where, I, I think I was addicted to nan bread and kebabs <laughs> and uh, that was all fine and good. Never had any more stomach troubles. Flash forward to my next tour in Afghanistan and uh, <laughs> I get through two thirds of the tour and all of a sudden uh, I'm supposed to rip out for HLTA and the day before I start to get sick and I'm like, Oh man, oh. I just got to suck this up and get on a plane and get the fuck out of here because <laughs> I need a break. And uh, I feel so bad for the guys that ripped in behind us because it all all hell broke loose for me at like three in the morning. <laughs> so these guys were just coming in. We'll say they were due to arrive in our compound at three thirty, and at three it all went downhill for me. So I'm trying to get into the bathroom and you know expel all the bodily fluids in my body, but I don't make it. So I literally fall down the stairs naked. I'm shitting myself. I'm puking on myself. And this poor fucking guy walks in the compound to replace me. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like, get a bar of soap. Get a butt plug. Never mind a bar of soap. No, it was, it was brutal. Welcome to Afghanistan. Just thinking you shitting yourself. Yeah. Oh, thanks. thanks. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, guys that are, you know, holding a racky position or you're sitting there over wa watching over whatever you're watching over and you can't leave. You got to shit yourself right there. You, you're trying not to eat. You're trying not to drink too much. <laughs> but inevitably, yeah. somebody has to shit. And yeah. unfortunately, they can't leave the hide to shit. <laughs> ah, the military. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my favorite memories from that tour was, uh, uh shooting yourself. We're, no, no, we're going through the desert and, uh, we're sort of doing some, some, uh, interesting navigation and it's a sandstorm and there's a clearing, like we're driving through the desert and there's, there's a bit of a clearing in the sandstorm where we, we, we realize that we're in the middle of a defensive minefield, like an old Russian defensive minefield. Fuck. And we're like, shit, this ain't on our map, boys. We're either lost or this map is fucked. And my buddy Adam looks over at me and he pats me on the legs and he's like, I got a bad feeling about your legs, buds. 
Like, like an <laughs> 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 army dinks are so fucked up. <laughs> yep. So what what was your what was your most rewarding experience out there? Um most rewarding experience. Uh at the risk of exposing myself as a softie, um we had a, a source that ended up saving well, stopped the it stopped the resupply column from hitting an IED that essentially would have turned the first vehicle into pink mist, Fuck. right? And HSBS would have destroyed it. And the way it all broke down at the end of it, um, so that guy saved us completely altruistic. He wasn't even on the books, right? He just literally saved it, and uh, we sort of recruited him, and uh, he ended up becoming basically the the village elder and uh his particular village prospered and you know it's uh he had six daughters which for an afghan is just it's a nightmare scenario yeah exactly because you have to give a dowry to each one of these these daughters because who's gonna take them otherwise but i don't know as, as stupid as that sounds it was just it was cool to see sort of everybody won on that one you know yeah um Second favorite one, most funny though, was we stopped an American patrol. Um, so there was a an IED specialist had come in to our area to train guys. So it was a six man IED cell, and then the the IED specialist. So there's seven dudes out there, and their final exercise per se is to set up an IED for an American patrol. Fuck. And we were able to call them and tell them that hey, don't send out your patrol because. They've been watching every day for the past three weeks, and there's a huge IED right here, and they're they're planting it right now. Yeah. And the guy at the other end of the radio is like, like they're there right now. We're like, yeah. He's like, oh my god, oh my god, stand by, stand by, stand by. <laughs> so he gives me a grid. He's like, is this the grid? I'm like, yep, that's the grid. He's like, is there this many people, and is there one guy standing off to the side right here? We're like, yep, that's it exactly. He's like, oh my god, wait, how close are you? We're like, why? <laughs> that was it. It was like. <laughs> Yeah, turns out we were danger close. <laughs> I got a fucking danger close story now that you mention it. This was during peacetime, but we're doing an all arms. You might have been in on it. I can't remember. We're it's three RCR and we're doing an all arm all arms combined attack, and it's danger close. And danger close was some like three hundred meters or something like that. Uh, I don't remember the exact distance, but I think it was three hundred meters. And so when shit's blowing up. You're you're feeling the earth rumble, and uh, the the guys are advancing on the attack, and I'm supposedly attacked to go leap uh, back, watching all of this shit. And uh, one of the guys, oh, one of the one of the young officers had hit, got hit with a piece of shrapnel in his boot. So we realized, fuck, this is this is serious. <laughs> so the attack goes on, and uh, one of the sergeants goes down. I won't mention his name. But he was man- named after a flower. And uh, he, he screams, I'm hit, I'm hit. So I go come sucking it over there to see what the fuck. You know, do I have to, have to stop a bleed or what's going on here? And uh, the boys by this time have got his pants stripped off. And they're standing back laughing. What happened was he didn't get hit by shrapnel. He got stung by a bee. <laughs> <laughs> and thought he got hit by shrapnel and fucking went off the deep end. <laughs> 
Awesome. You didn't live that one down. (laughs) All right. So we've shot the shit here a whole good lot. Um, What else you got to tell us about Human Int? Um, Man, what else do I have to tell you about Human Int? Besides, it's the best job in the world. (laughs) Yeah, other than the best job in the world. Something you can tell the public. Something I can tell the public. Steve, that's a tough one. (laughs) Um, Because I don't want to be the guy. That puts his foot in it, and to be like, "Holy fuck, you just gave that away!" <laughs> well, don't give anything away. I can tell you that uh, I can tell the public. If you want to be a human, um, it would behoove you to have good computer skills and be able to write and type. Why would you want to be a human? Um, because you make the single biggest contribution, and I feel the single biggest contribution to preparing the battlefield you make a difference and what you do not only saves lives, but leads to effective operations. And in effect, you deal with the people who are trying to kill you and you try to, it's, it's a Tom Clancy novel, live, live and out live. Yeah. I mean, you have to put yourself in some awkward positions and uh, manipulate the situation to get the outcome that you want. Um, and I think that, uh, that's half the burnout. That's half the reason for the burnout. I mean, the other half is, is stupid days. Right. And so the, I landed like six days after the Sarapose prison break in 2008 and we worked, you know, 16, 18 hour days every day for yeah. five and a half months straight. Did you guys, you, you had no information on that, uh, no, we had all kinds, but people didn't believe us. They're like, oh, that's fairy tale. That only happens in Hollywood. We're like, no, they're tunneling a big fucking tunnel. And and everyone sort of laughed at us. They're like, yeah, yeah, the great escape, the great escape. And all of a sudden, all those guys are back in the wind. And, and it took us all that time to get the important ones back. I mean, there were some that, that weren't important that were just, you know, okay, yep, they're back in the wild. But there were some that were some very, very bad dudes. Yeah. And they were savvy dudes. Um, they knew that, you know, we had the ability to listen to their radios and some other stuff. And they went old school, like chalk marks on the wall kind of deal and passing hand notes. And that's that's tough to track unless you're in the network, right? right. So that takes a lot of grunt work, like a lot of uh, man hours to track down. Um, but we eventually got all those guys. And who was the biggest catch? Um, I don't remember their, I don't remember their actual names. What, what what was he in charge of? So our biggest catch was he was the regional commander for basically RC South, Regional Command South. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was he was a local guy, but he was educated and trained in Pakistan. He managed all the logistics of IED components for that particular region out of all the different areas, you know, Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, um, places that you wouldn't you wouldn't even really think that they would come from, but they were coming from all over the place. Yeah. And he basically was in charge of about 3000 fighters. That's a significant guy to take off. But yeah, but then again, it's gotta be frustrating because you've taken this guy off, off the fucking, um, out of the mountains and immediately there's somebody else there to pull up the slack. Yeah, but it takes a long time, and there's, you know, it's a complicated situation there. There's a lot to do with personalities and individuals. And so when he was gone, it was a, that was a massive disruption. Even his second in command, 
didn't have anywhere near the command authority that that guy did. He didn't have the charisma and he didn't have the smarts. Yep. Um, and when he got back out, we were, we were pretty fortunate because, um, he ended up coming out in a kinetic strike. So, you know, we didn't have to put him back in prison. Yeah. We just identified the body and put it away. That that's gotta, that's gotta feel good too. It's gotta feel great. Right. Especially when you know he's responsible for a dozen Canadian deaths. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and you know, not to sound like a psycho, but there i I personally feel that it's the right thing to do to take those people out. No, uh, well, we both sound like a psycho, and uh, a lot of guys in our former pr- profession sound like psychos. Um, but I've said in the past, and I'll say it again now, there are some people that need to be killed. And you can believe in whatever God or whatever God out there that's going to punish these guys for some reason. But I like to think... Well, I don't believe there's a God, and I think these guys need to be punished now, not on some off chance that, you know, some God is going to take care of it. You got soldiers for a reason, and hopefully they're being used wisely, not as cannon fodder, but as guys like you who went in there, did the tough in jobs, and took these guys off the streets or out of the hills. So, well done, you. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) i don't you know isn't it weird how um when you think back on it or if you know even if uh you know just a joe schmo city off the street says thank you for something it feels so awkward to say you're welcome or or thank you because it's like to me i i didn't even consider it a choice it's just i was driven to try and do it yeah absolutely and i i i I got over that awkwardness somewhat because people see you in uniform and they or find out you were in, in the military and thank you for your service. And I, I think, fuck, I, I, yes, it was service, but I wanted to do that job and I got to do a lot of cool shit. And you saying thank you seems, you know, I mean, thanks a lot, but it, it, I, I've done this because I wanted to and I really enjoyed it. But yeah, I always end up weird. saying thank you for your support. And uh, that sort of balances things out again. Yeah. What I hate is when cops, my niece is a cop now and a buddy of mine is a cop, when they say thank you for your service. Because you, cause immediately again, it's awkward because these guys are, are defending the home front. Um, and it seems you, you're equals. So, you know, giving each other a reach around. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know what? You know what the crazy part about cops for me is? is, you know, the good ones, because there's some sort of some bad ones, but for the good ones, um, you know, at the end of the day, when we came out of theater, I mean, except for that one time where they came here to, to look for us, which is another story, but they, when we come out of theater, we're out of theater. Yeah. Right? Cops in it every day. Yeah. His whole career is every day he's in it. He doesn't know what's going to go bad um, from the minute he steps out the door and onto the street. Yeah. So in my mind, it'd be way harder to be a cop. Yeah, that's what I say too. But uh, <laughs> not all cops look at it that way. And, no. uh, you know, a lot of cops don't have to never see that kind of thing. They never pull their uh, service weapon. But the potential is there. And yeah. that's what I admire about them. So <laughs> maybe we just totally. got ourselves out of a traffic ticket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any cops listen to this, we're big supporters. Yep. Um <laughs> So a, a weird thank you. My brain ping-ponged a little bit. Um, 
so I went I went to the hundredth anniversary of Vimy with yeah. my buddy who we did Afghan tours with. And uh, we were at the Menengate sunset ceremony in, in the city, the Belgian city Belgium. of Ypres. Yeah. And uh, General Hilliard was there. Excellent. Had RCMP security around him. And, uh, you know, sorry if there's RCMP listening, but they were they were looking at pretty girls. They weren't doing their job. <laughs> so I said to Pete, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go over and say hi. He's like, you'll never get through security. So I literally just stepped over the fence, walked over and said hi. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, he looked over at me and he's like, I'm sorry, son, I don't remember your name, but I do remember you from Petawawa from 1995-ish. Yeah. And I was like, holy fuck. That's amazing. He just put us in the pocket, and he and he took us on the VIP bus, and we just he just just took us along. He's like, I remember you from 3RCR. Let's go. <laughs> so it was an, he was an amazing dude. That's the, probably the highlight of my Petawawa time was, was uh, he was an amazing dude. I had a couple of conversations with him over the years. Uh, Helping Chuck his son, uh, son of the Mock Tower, um, he was going to go get his uh, basic para done, and uh, so we shot the shit like just a couple of jokes, like you and me are doing, because he's a very yeah. down to earth kind of guy. Um, yeah. With any luck, I'll get to interview him for this podcast. <laughs> Dream well, big. I hope you do. Yeah. Well, he's a little busy right now, so um, it's unlikely in the near future. But with any luck, I definitely will. All right, so have we talked human int uh, to death here or what? I think we talked yeah, about pretty so. much everything else because you can't tell us anything. <laughs> and that's the tough part, man. I, You know, it's do, do selection to, to any guys who are still in uniform. Are you thinking about it? For God's sakes, go try out, go do selection because we need the good people. Yep. Just try it out and get the brief at the end of it. And they'll tell you in no uncertain terms, in black and white, they'll tell you what kind of off-the-wall shit you'd be expected to do. And they give you a chance to bow out afterwards because it's pretty heavy what they hand to you. But it's worth doing. Best job in the world. Yeah. All right. On that note, I give you the last word. What do you got to say? Thanks for having me, Steve. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for appearing. It was a great serving with you. We'll get together and we'll talk about a more substantial subject uh, um, in the very near future, I think. Absolutely. Um, because we can't talk about secret shit very well. <laughs> <laughs> Not on the radio. <laughs> no, but that's where it's going. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I'd like to say to anybody listening, if you want to uh, learn more about uh, human intelligence gathering uh, in the Canadian military, then you can uh, drop me a line at uh, Steve C. Copang. That's Sierra Tango Echo Victor Echo. Charlie, Kilo, Oscar, Papa, Papa, Alpha, November, Golf at gmail.com. And if you want to talk to William, well, go through me unless you want to be contacted directly, William. Nope, I'm good. Okay. And I'll pass on uh, any information you guys want to uh, William or anybody else that's been interviewed on this show. And uh, thanks for listening. Be good to each other. We'll live life today because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Thanks a lot again for listening to Rockus Bacchus.